0: Alright, so Mark 13, Daniela says that her Bible heading said, Things to come. Again, that's a good summation. Uh, It's talking about the Olivet Discourse. Remember, we started looking at that last week. We only got in eight verses, and we're going to progress a little bit this morning. Logan, will you turn on that back TV for me, please? Thanks, bro. And before we jump in, let's do a little bit of review of where we've been. What is so significant about Jesus' prediction concerning the temple in 13, verse 2? I'll go ahead and read that for us. Uh, I'll read one and two, actually. It says, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. What's so significant about that prediction that Jesus made? It's all going to be destroyed. Not even one thing will
1: be raised on another stone.
0: Yeah, so it actually came to be fulfilled already, right? And it was fulfilled in a literal sense, wasn't it? Not just in a, a spiritual, allegorical type of. Uh, some kind of weird spiritualized meaning it actually happened right we have documented historical evidence that it took place exactly as Jesus said that it would take place and in that uh, it took place in that way it gives verifiable credence to everything else that Jesus is going to lay out for us in this chapter because there were people who were there and they were able to witness that what Jesus said about the temple actually came to pass that actually took place and so these other events which still haven't taken place even from our perspective, they're still future even from today, which can't be verified, they can be verified based upon Jesus' words and this extraordinary prediction concerning the temple that people thought that was impossible. And so these other seemingly impossible things are verified through Jesus' prediction of this first prophecy. Does that make sense? That- was just a word salad that came out of my mouth. But the the first thing gives credence to the second thing. All right, and then remember that we talked briefly about the different positions um, on the importance of 70 AD, the events that took place in 70 AD where uh, Rome came in and they dismantled Jerusalem and the temple, and people have a different degree of understanding or a different understanding of the degree of importance that that had. In history. And so we talk about preterists and how preterists hold to the position that everything in the Bible is history. All the prophecy in this, all the discourse, everything in Daniel and Revelation that's already taken place. That's the position of the preterists. The partial preterists believe that most of that stuff has taken place and is represented by 70 AD, but they still maintain a belief in the second coming and a resurrection, there's still a future judgment. And then futurists believe that the majority of uh, biblical prophecy, at least New Testament prophecy, in Revelation is still yet to come. And that some things have happened, um, but as I mentioned, that the destruction of Jerusalem is more of just a a verification. It just gives credence to these greater predictions that Jesus has made for these Future end time events. So, those are three main positions that we have uh, and in and even without Christianity. Again, I don't believe that preterists can rightly be called Christians. I think that's a different teaching. It's not orthodox, it's not historic Christianity. And so, in response to uh, verse 2, when Jesus is given this prediction about the temple, saying that. Not one stone is going to be left on another. The disciples come to him. Remember, there are four disciples. It's Peter, James, John, and Peter's brother, Andrew. And they come and they ask Jesus three questions. They ask him, when are these things going to be happening? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And what's going to be the sign of the end of the age? And then Jesus goes on to reassure them in verses 7 and 8 of Mark 13 that uh, they don't need to worry. They don't need to trip. These things, yes, are going to take place, but they're not yet the end. So we titled these as non-signs of, uh, that Jesus gives, that they don't need to be worrying. So what are the five things that we identified in our text as these non-signs that aren't the end? Jesus said, yes, they're going to continue. Yes, these things are going to happen. But don't worry. Don't trip. It's not yet the end.
1: Is that they're people trying to mislead
0: them? Yeah, they are going to be people who will come and deceive them. These false messiahs, right? Good. What else did we see? Wars and
1: earthquakes.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, wars and rumors of wars, and then earthquakes and famines, right? So those five things we see in the text that uh, Jesus says... They're going to take place, right? But it's not yet the end. They're just the beginning of birth pains, right? And why did Jesus use the analogy of birth pains? They'll become
1: more frequent and stronger.
0: Yeah, they'll become stronger and, and more frequently, right? And they come toward the end as well, right? They're uh, representing something that's coming up to the end. Can, they come. It
1: can take a long time, right?
0: Yes, they can take a long time. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Abby's like, really? How long, how long can they take? <laughs> All right, so so you ladies who have been through who has the, the record for the longest labor? Oh, must be Brittany then. Yeah. She was 24 plus, and then C section. Yeah. Yeah, about 27, 28 hours. So, Abby, we'll pray that yours is a fraction of that time.
1: We, we went to the hospital and hung around there, and they eventually sent us home. So it didn't happen for a couple of days
0: later. Okay. But contractions had already started, right? Yeah, they did.
1: They weren't severe yet. Yeah. They were regular enough. They thought we should come in. Yeah. And they, and they
0: quit. Yeah, and that's the, the nature of giving birth, right? It'll... Again, increase in frequency and severity, and so you start off kind of small and light, even some brats and hicks. Sometimes in the second trimester, that are just false starts, right? Uh, to to mix male and female analogies a little bit, um, you're you're not quite there. You have a little bit of a little bit of time to go. All right, so the the come they come at the the end of the pregnancy, and they increase in frequency and intensity, um, and they. Um, this is also apparent in in Revelation. We can see if we go through the book of Revelation that the events, the end time events that we read about there, they seem to increase in frequency and severity. You start off with the the seven seals, and and it's bad. You're talking about tribulation stuff, but it gets even worse as time goes on and you get into the the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. They seem to increase in both intensity and frequency that they're coming about and occurring. And so using that analogy that Jesus provides of birth pains, uh, what is the birth that these birth pains are leading up to? Because natural birth pains, natural um, contractions, they lead up to the birth of a baby, right? So using this analogy, what is the, the birth of a baby that Jesus is saying, this is what these birth pains are leading to? yeah his his second coming right that was the that was what they were asking about Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom the end of the age when Jesus introduced this idea of the temple being destroyed that's automatically where their mind went that okay well Jesus is going to be setting up his kingdom that was their thought going back to Zechariah 14 we looked at last week and that's why they're asking well when when are you going to establish your kingdom when is going to be the end of the age and he's giving these Non signs of these birth pains that are leading up to um, and increasing in intensity and frequency, but he said these aren't aren't the signs. The end is not yet here, right? Any thoughts or questions on our study from last week before we jump into this week? Verses one through eight. All right, we'll be thinking about it. We'll see if we can address any of those as we come on. Um, our text today is filled with a bunch of questions. Uh, not necessarily questions in the text, but questions that it should be drawing us to ask of the text. So let's go ahead and read. Can I get somebody to read for us, actually? Mark 13, 9 through 13. Somebody got that? I got it. Thanks, Anna. But be
1: on your guard, and they will
0: deliver you to the courts and you
1: will be. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you, hand you over, do, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and child will raise up against parents and put them to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. The one who endures to the end, he will be
0: saved. All right. Do you guys have any initial questions of that text? Does that spark any questions in your mind? Or is it just immediately clear in all aspects?
1: Well, a lot of those things have happened up and on through centuries.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so those things have been taken place and we're still here, right? That That's kind of curious. Let me share with you some of the questions that I had of this passage that I think we should have. Who are the they in verse 9 when it says that uh, they will deliver you into the courts and you will be flogged? Who is the you? Who is it talking to initially that you will be flogged? I think that's an important question we have to ask. Verse 10 uh, says that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And so that indicates sequence. First before what? Uh, Verse 11, who is in view when it's talking about being arrested and handed over and not worrying about what they have to say? Who is it talking about there? And to what degree does that apply to us? Do we take on that same uh, mentality about not worrying what to say? Um, There are a lot of people who will use that verse for preaching and teaching i will just say oh i'm not going to worry about what i'm going to teach i'm just going to get up in the pulpit and whatever comes out comes out that's a poor application of that verse um when when is verse 12 referring to what is the time period that it's talking about here when brother is going to betray, uh, betray brother to death and father his child and child will raise up against his parents uh is this something that was back in the first century. Is this something that is looking toward the to the end time, to the tribulation? Um, who is in view in, in verse 13? Talking about you being hated by all, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And again, how do we fit into this equation? So again, a lot of questions that I have looking at this text, just wondering, okay, well, how do we make sense of all this? And all these questions, I think, we could boil down to when is this talking about, what time period, and who is in view in these verses. Are these verses referring to the first century church in Israel, the disciples that Jesus was right there talking to -to face-to-face, or is it referring to a a future generation, not the first generation of the church, but the first generation after the church is raptured, the first generation that will see the tribulation and the second coming. And I don't think that it has to be necessarily an an either-or. It doesn't have to be the first century church or the first century after the church I think we can see both generations within the the audience of this group that Jesus had both these generations in mind it's a a both and in my opinion and so uh, going back again to last week what chapters in the Bible discuss the, the Olivet Discourse this teaching that Jesus is giving us he's on the Mount of Olives just hours before his death Where can we find that in the Bible?
1: Matthew
0: 24. Yeah, Matthew 24. And then here, obviously, in Mark 13, right? Does anybody else remember the third one? It's also in a synoptic gospel, not in John. Matthew what? Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And then Luke 21. Oh, Oh, were you going to say it? You should have been more (laughs) brave, Joseph. Next time. Alright, those are important chapters. Again, all talking about the same thing, the same event, Jesus sitting down on the Mount of Olives teaching about things to come, right? So these are good chapters to remember that they're equal, right? In your mind, put an equal sign in between those chapters. There, again, are going to be differences because there are different authors writing to different audiences for different purposes, but all covering the Olivet Discourse. And... If we go back to our last verse we looked at last week, Mark thirteen eight, there's a similar verse in all three of these chapters, in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And so I'm going to go ahead and read that for us again to set us up for the next verse. It says, For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines, and these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Again, Matthew and Luke each have a, a similar verse that say essentially the same thing, and Luke throws in to his account that there will also be plagues and terrors and great signs in heaven. And then this next verse comes, Mark 13:9, which says, "But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues." And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And so here, Jesus seems to be bringing it back a little bit to the audience that he's talking to, to his disciples that he's speaking directly to. Again, these four disciples. And so remember, they asked him this question. um, You know, when are these things going to take place? He gave them these non-signs and is... Personally warning them, don't get caught up in, in all this hype, don't think that I'm coming before before I come, right? There are going to be many false people who come in, in my name. All this stuff is going to continue to happen, these wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, uh, don't get caught up in that. But, and then again kind of bringing it back, these things uh, don't mean the end, you don't need to worry about them. But you should be worried about this persecution that you're going to be facing instead. That should be forefront in your mind, right? And we see a similar thing in Luke 21.12, where Jesus answers here, but before all these things, so yes, there are going to be these false these signs, right? Or these uh, signs that aren't quite the end, they're just leading up to the end. But before all these things... They will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogue and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. So, yes, again, all these things are going to take place. Uh, false Christ, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and he even throws in, again, famines, plagues, even astronomical signs. But they're, they're not the end. They're just the beginning of the end. there's a lot worse to come. But even before all these things take place, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be oppression. These are things that you guys personally are going to have to uh, account for and have to to figure out and be ready for. So looking at these two verses in uh, Mark 13.9 and Luke 21.12, do you see any significant differences between these verses? Bless you they're essentially the same, right? A little bit of different language. Luke uses persecution, whereas Mark uses the word flogged. But they're more or less the same, right? Well, let's look at Matthew 24.9. Matthew 24.9 says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And so Matthew kind of takes it in a, a different direction. I think Mark and Luke they record Jesus' words as uh, when he's addressing the disciples, talking about the persecution that they're going to face that they they, is awaiting them. But Matthew uses this word "then" talking about what's going to take place after these signs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. So I think he's looking uh, at the tribulation that's going to take place after the the non-signs after these wars rumors of wars and these beginning of birth pains. So again, I think it's kind of both and the persecution that's before play that's going to take place beforehand as well as the persecution that takes place afterwards. <coughs> Do you notice any other differences between Matthew's account and Mark and Luke's account? Well, in Luke it says
1: but before all these
0: things. It be yeah, Yeah, Luke points out that Before this, there's going to be persecution, right? That they're going to deliver you over to these different places. So, persecution has always been around. Yeah, Joseph? I think in
1: Matthew, it's the one that explicitly says, like, they'll kill you.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty (laughs) explicit, right? And will kill you. Like, there should be an exclamation point in there somewhere, right? (laughs) That's a pretty big deal. They will kill you. Right. they will hate you yeah I, I can't help but hear Liam Neeson whenever I say that and they will kill you <laughs> yeah Well,
1: <laughs>
0: yes yeah each of them is in the the second person right talking about you and Matthew also brings up that word tribulation right Uh, Mark and Luke mentioned flogging and persecution but Matthew actually uses that term tribulation and I think that the rest of his narrative actually goes to the not just the general term of tribulation or persecution but to that time period in future history of the tribulation that seven year period that Daniel talks about and we read about in Revelation I think um, all the, the accounts will go there but Matthew in particular, even in this section, I think he begins to go there into that period of tribulation.
1: Well, and for the day, if he identifies it's everybody else. Yeah. nations, that's pretty, pretty broad, and we've never seen that yet.
0: Yes, all, all nations, and uh, yeah, even later on in this discourse, we'll see that it's going to be a, a terror that's unparalleled in human history, either past or future, right? So, yes, I think that Jesus has in view the disciples themselves when he's giving this discourse, this, at least a sectional discourse talking about this tribulation and the coming persecution um, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, but I think he's also speaking of events that will immediately precede his second coming in the tribulation. Again, I think it's, it's both and. Uh, And I believe that we have some dual fulfillment going on here, right? Where the the first fulfillment leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is going to be kind of a foreshadowing of the future fulfillment in the tribulation. We shouldn't be shocked that God can take and use one prophecy to unfold two distinct and yet parallel events. Uh, He's fully capable of, of doing that. The first event uh, acting as a fulfilling act that is foreshadowing the second event that is yet to come. Several months ago, it's been a while now, we looked at Isaiah 7 and 8 and talking about Isaiah's son and how Isaiah was prophesying his son, right? In the famous Christmas verse in Isaiah seven fourteen, talking about how the Lord himself, he will uh, give you a sign and the virgin will be birthed and she will... The virgin will be pregnant, will give birth to a son, um, and give birth to a child. And how that's, in in the immediate context, it's talking about Isaiah's son, right? Look at Isaiah 8, 3, I think, talking about his son. But yeah, we know it's ultimately talking about Jesus, right? So there's a little bit of dual fulfillment going on there. Some near fulfillment and some far fulfillment. Next week, we're going to get into the the abomination of desolation. And so we'll talk a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes. And he seems to really kind of be a foreshadowing of the abomination of desolation that is going to come in the end times, in the great tribulation. And so a little bit of dual fulfillment going on here with the, the first century being the immediate fulfillment, but there's still being a later fulfillment that is yet to come in the future. Any thoughts or questions at this point? Okay. All right, so, Jerry, you started to talk about the they and the you uh, in this passage. So, in we'll just stick with Mark 13, 9 for now. It says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. So, it seems to be, again, directed most immediately to those in the first century talking to the disciples, but we can be even more specific than that. Um, who is it that will be doing the the persecuting in in this verse, in this context? Can we get any clues from this verse about... Uh, who will be persecuting the first century Christians?
1: What is mention of the synagogues says it's the
0: unbelieving Jews. Good. Yeah. So it's talking about being flogged in the synagogue. So the Jews have control and authority over the synagogue. So they're going to be persecuting these Christians, right? Is it going to be just the Jews? No. How do you know? It mentions governors and kings. Yes, governors and kings as well. So there's going to be persecution from, from both sides, right? From the Jewish religious authorities as well as from the governmental authorities, the political authorities, the governors and kings as well. And I just wanted to share this quote from you from John MacArthur's commentary. He says that the book of Acts records many instances in which believers in the early church faced persecution from Jewish opponents. So see this long list of verses that's just from Acts and it's just Jewish opponents. He cites uh, chapter 3, 12 through 26, 4, 1 through 3, 5, 18, 6, 8 through 11, 7, 57 through 60, 8, 1 through 3. And we have three more lines of that just on and on and on. All these different occurrences of persecution that, again is just narrowed in on the book of Acts and it's just focusing particularly on the persecution that comes from the Jews. That's pretty specific and that's a lot of references that we have that we can go and see, okay, well, yes, these things came to pass and Jesus is warning them that the Jews are going to hate you. They're going to come up against you and they're going to persecute you uh, in these courts and in the synagogues. But again, he mentions not just them, he mentions governors and kings as well. And also, just keeping it to Acts. In Acts 24, uh, Paul goes before Felix, right? And he's put under arrest for two years. In 26, he stands before King Agrippa and and Festus. And in 25, he appeals to Caesar. And so ultimately, he goes and stands before Caesar and gives his account, bears his testimony. And so uh, that's just the book of Acts. And that's just Paul. And Paul wasn't even here when Jesus was saying these things and warning these people on the Mount of Olives that these are persecutions that you're going to have to endure. These are things that you're going to have to bear. And did you catch the purpose that is mentioned for these persecutions that Jesus gives here in Mark 13.9? Why are these persecutions going to come about?
1: A testimony to them.
0: Yeah, a testimony to the the people that are persecuting them, right? A testimony of who, who Jesus is. He says it's going to be for my sake, for his glory, that these followers of Christ are going to be persecuted in these various ways from both Jews and Gentiles alike. They're going to undergo this persecution for the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ. And in doing so, they will bear testimony to the people that are persecuting them. And again, this is exactly what Paul did as he was standing before Felix and Festus and Agrippa, all these people. He was bearing his testimony. We see this with Stephen in Acts chapter 7, right? He's bearing testimony to who this Jesus is. And he's being very bold and very blunt and saying, this is the Christ that you persecuted. This is the, the man that you put to death. And he did it for you. And he's bearing testimony for their sake. It reminds me of when it's talking about bearing testimony, how they're coming up against even these wicked men who are persecuting them and they're testifying against them. Reminds me of Jesus' words back in Matthew 12, uh, 41 through 42. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So he's saying that these men of Nineveh, they're going to be a a testimony against you. They're going to be a witness against you on the great day of judgment and say, well, no, that, you guys should have repented because we repented and we only had uh, Jonah coming through and yelling at us to repent, right? <laughs> and he goes on, he says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, remember she went and traveled to go and see Solomon. Uh, she traveled a long way to go see Solomon. He said that she will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so now Jesus is saying, well, you're going to go and you're going to be my testimony before these people who are going to persecute you. That doesn't mean that uh, they're going to fall on their knees and repent. It might be a testimony that's going to be exacted on judgment day. And... Uh, looking back in Mark 13 down in verse 10 uh, it says that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations this is another one of the questions that I had just approaching this text uh, what does that mean? what is first here in reference to? what must first be or the gospel must first be preached before what? remember you still have Luke 21:12 up there on your screen as well Yeah, before the second coming, right? So before all these things, before these birth pangs leading up to the second coming, which obviously means before the second coming, the gospel must first be preached to all of the nations. Uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen again, again, uh, parallel passage, says this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So let me ask you, has this happened yet? Has the gospel been preached to all the nations? No. Not, quite. <laughs> Not quite, right? We still have some work to do. Quite a bit of work to do. Um, some people will offer objections uh, and often will cite Colossians one twenty three, which is an interesting verse. There Paul says that uh, he speaks of the hope of the gospel that you have heard which which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That is kind of interesting and definitely a verse worth our consideration. But Paul here isn't commenting on the the timing of this proclamation, even though it kind of seems to be in the the past tense where it says that uh, this Gospel was preached. But instead he's talking about the the method, the way in which it will be communicated to the world. It will be uh, proclaimed by preaching. And it will be a a gospel message that will be proclaimed and preached indiscriminately to all creatures of, uh, under heaven, all creatures of the earth. Uh, John Piper does a a really good, he has a really good podcast, Ask Pastor John, where people will write in and ask him questions. And he's asked almost 2,000 questions. And in APJ, short for Ask Pastor John, APJ 1741, he gave a really, good, clear answer to that verse. Did you have a comment or a question?
1: Well, I it's speculation, but certainly that the uh, apostles did go cover a very large percentage of the world. Obviously, not just meeting every person, but there's, there's no reason to not think that some representatives did make it all the way across the Bering Straits to America, too. That's It's possible, we don't have any evidence, well, I should say, there is some evidence, but but also in Acts 17, Paul said that, that <clears throat> the, the resurrection is the evidence to, to all men.
0: Hmm. So, you know, that's... But not all men know of the resurrection, right? Well,
1: but I think that is what he's saying. They do know of it. We you know, just um, not firsthand knowledge, but but testimony and evidence and internal. There's just a lot of indications that God is doing stuff that we can't see and we can't don't record, but. It's just interesting to me that um, my friend in, in Alaska was one of the first people to go into Russia after the the curtain came down. Mm. They, they were given permission to fly over, and he met Christians over there that had found out about Christ simply because the Eskimos were oh. not prohibited from going back and forth across families on both sides of this strain so yeah, I think I just think God has been able to to give more of a testimony than we have any concept of. yeah and so he can make statements like that without our being able to evidence we can trust in doing stuff more than we imagine
0: yeah God is a, a big god and he does amazing things.
1: And with that, that we not carry or hold back, because we're like, well, he hasn't made all the nations, he's not coming
0: yet. He can still be coming, we don't know. Yeah, amen. Yeah, there's nothing that has to take place before Christ comes back for his bride, right? There's no event that needs to to happen. Um, He can come back at any moment, uh, imminently. Even the disciples after Christ in the first century, they still have that understanding of the imminent return of Christ without anything taking place beforehand. It's important to keep in mind. Um, At the end of Romans 15, Paul speaks to his desire here to continue to go and to preach the gospel to Spain and to Rome. So that would indicate that um, not all the world had yet been evangelized at that point. Um, and then this verse back in Mark thirteen ten, which says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. It's often used to motivate people to, to preach the gospel. And, and I love the gospel and I want people to preach the gospel. And I want Jesus to come back. But to your point, Amy, I don't think that uh, Jesus' return is contingent upon us preaching the gospel. We should be preaching gospel, but I don't think our preaching of the gospel is what... Is, is going to ultimately usher in Christ's return. That we are going to be the ones to proclaim the, the final message. Instead, what I think this verse is referring to, that the gospel must first be preached to all nations, I think that's referring to what's going to take place that we read about in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. This is a crazy cool verse. It says, John writing, and I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. So I think that this is a reference to this final gospel proclamation that's not going to come from the mouth of human beings like you and me. It's going to come from the mouth of an angel. Who's going and flying, and instantaneously he's going to preach this good news to all the world, giving them one last chance to turn and repent before they're consumed in fire and, and tribulation and death. Um, I, yeah, we should be preaching the gospel, absolutely, but we're not going to be the ones preaching the final gospel for sure. Have you guys heard of uh, Origin from church history? What do you know about Origen? What is he famous for? So
1: Jesus is a holy God. Yes. That's why I know him.
0: Yeah, yeah he denied the, the deity of Christ, right? He is known as, in church history, as the father of the allegorical interpretation of Scripture, right? He, he kind of introduced that, um, along with Clement, who came before him, Clement of Alexandria, that whole uh, kind of western thought of how we understand and interpret scripture but Origen, he had this thing for going into scripture and making it say something it absolutely didn't say he has some weird funky interpretations of what the text says <clears throat> but i want to read a quote to you from Origen. he says it is evident <clears throat> that the gospel of the kingdom has not yet been preached in all the world it is not reported to have been preached among all the Ethiopians, especially among those beyond the river, nor among the Sari, nor in the east. What are we to say of the bristons or the Germans along the sea, or of the Barbarians, and he goes on and on beyond what I actually recorded in here, uh the Dacians, the Samaritans, the Scythians if anyone is minded to say rashly that the gospel of the kingdom has already been preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations, he will consequently be constrained to say that the end has already come. That would be most rash a most rash statement indicating a lack of understanding. And I thought that was a a funny quote coming from Origen because he made a lot of most rash statements taking and twisting Scripture. But even Origen realized that um, if, if that were the case, then the end would have come. So not everybody has heard the Gospel yet. The end has not come. I think, again, we're still waiting for that angel from Revelation 14 before the end is to come. But... We should continue to preach the gospel. We should continue to do it faithfully. We shouldn't wait for the angel to step up and do our job for us, right? We shouldn't let the rocks cry out on our behalf because of our apathetic position. Any thoughts or questions before we jump into verse eleven? What was that verse in Revelation again? Fourteen six through seven. Not everybody has heard the gospel, but obviously everybody is accountable. Is that because of Romans 1 creation? Yes. Because, I mean, you hear the arguments, right? Well, how can the... Whatever, yeah. You know, yeah, how could a just God condemn us to hell if yeah. they haven't heard about Jesus and the only way of salvation? But, yeah, in Romans 1, we have general revelation and special revelation. Remember, we talked about that early in our study that the, the revelation that we have from, from nature, from creation... Is sufficient enough to condemn us. It's sufficient enough to tell us that what God has revealed about Himself is plain to us, because God has made it plain to us. For since the creation of the world, His invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. We don't have an excuse to give for why there is no God, for why we have rejected against and rejected and um, turned against that God. But we need special revelation. We need the truth of who Jesus is preached from the Bible, preached from the mouth of preachers. How will they know unless somebody preaches to them, right? Romans 10. That is what is necessary for salvation. Sam? Uh, I think it's also important to understand that people are condemned for not understanding the Gospel when they have never heard the Gospel, but instead their condemnation is because of their sins. Yes. It's not the, the lack of, of Jesus that, that sends us to hell. It's the lack of uh, holiness on our own part. Yeah, we have no righteousness, right? We've sinned against a holy God. That is what is condemnable. Good point. Thanks. All right. Can I get somebody to read for us verses 11 through 13? I can.
1: Thank you but the one who endures to the end
0: will be saved. Alright, thank you. Alright, so again, I think that these verses are immediately concerning the disciples in the first century and the things that they were going to undergo, the persecution they were going to undergo and uh, the hardship they were going to face. But I think it's also applicable for all subsequent generations that we're all going to have this in, in some respect be applicable to us. Uh, just taking that that first verse talking about when they arrest you and hand you over, this persecution they're going to endure, right? Or we could say even to some degree that we would endure. It says, Do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but, whatever, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit. And we know that at... Uh, I'll get to you in a second, Steve. We know that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's role changed in that He began to indwell permanently those who uh, are His, right? He takes up residence within the church uh, once and for all, not to ever leave again. However, we also know that He operated in a unique way concerning the disciples, right? For one, He was inspiring the disciples to write Scripture. That's unique to them, right? That's not uh, a way in which the Holy Spirit is... Um, controlling us or that we are being controlled by the Holy Spirit rather and also in the first century the disciples were given miraculous sign gifts to validate their apostolic authority they they had apostolic authority that needed to be validated by these sign gifts right and so there's some distinction between how the Holy Spirit works in our lives and how he worked in the lives of the first century disciples who Jesus was first talking to when he was giving this this proclamation to just go in and, and speak and don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give it to you. It's also important to realize that they weren't promised that they would be let off the hook, right? They were told, you don't need to worry. You don't need to fret. God's going to give you what you need to say when you're in these situations. But they weren't promised that they were going to be set free. And in fact, they weren't, right? They were killed and persecuted. They were, um, their lives were demanded of them because of, uh, the answer that they gave that was provided to them by the Holy Spirit. Steve.
1: In Numbers 22, there was a donkey that uh, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and spoke to the wicked king that was beating the donkey. Yeah. So it, it, it's amazing. I mean, what's once, once the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, he, if he wants to get someone speaking to speak in the, even a donkey will be speaking.
0: Yeah, yeah if he can use Balaam's donkey, he can use us, right? <laughs> Good. So,
1: these people that will be presented before these wicked government kings and others will be speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, and they will be a witness and a testimony against
0: them. Amen. Good. Alright. Um, looking in verse 11 and 12, the Greek word that's translated here is hand you over, that these men will hand you over in verse 11. It's the same Greek word as betray in verse 12. So this section is talking about a lot of betrayal, a lot of um, imprisonment that is going to take place. And again, this is something that we see all throughout Christian history. This isn't something that's unique to the first century, not something that's going to be unique to the time of tribulation. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 says that all who desire to live a godly, Christ, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise that we have for anybody who is a, a true Christian of, of God, a true follower of Christ. Uh, and we should think of this passage in Matthew 10. Somebody have that passage for us? Matthew 10, 34 through 36. You guess you have it. All right.
1: It says, Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Hmm. For I have come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter in law against her mother in law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household.
0: All right. Thank you. Yeah, this. This is and always has been the the tension of the gospel that the gospel brings, right? That the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That those who are outside of Christ, they have a a hatred towards God. They're at enmity toward God, just like we used to be, right? Before God stepped in and changed our, our hearts, changed our desires. The world hates the gospel. And we shouldn't be surprised when they rise up against us and they speak against us and they even imprison or persecute us. That is the the natural outflow of a heart that hates God. It shouldn't be at all surprising to us. Uh, Jesus said in John 16.2, He said they will make you outcasts from the synagogue but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That's That's what it means to to be a Christian, right? That people are going to hate you. They're going to come up against and persecute and even kill you possibly and do so in the name of God, thinking they are offering service to God. And again, I believe that this was meant, first of all, for the, the first century Christians, but that it will increase and get worse even as contractions or birth pains increase and Jesus' second coming draws nearer and nearer and hatred for the Gospel rises even more and more, I think that this persecution will increase and will become greater and more severe and uh, even more frequent than what it was even in the first century. But uh, in the end, just as throughout all time in human history, God's people will always respond to persecution with faithful endurance. That's what it says in verse thirteen: that you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So I think that that is the the reality again, both in the the first century and all the way up throughout history, and especially toward the end in the the tribulation, that those who endure to the end they will be saved. Uh, Philippians one six. Says, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If we are called to God by the Holy Spirit, uh, he's not going to allow us to forsake him. He is the one who is going to, uh, he's the one who began a good work in us, and he's the one who will perfect that good work in us. If we are truly his, then we will remain his. First uh, John 2 talks about those who went out from us because they were never of us, right? They're not truly in Christ and that's why they're able to abandon Christ. They're able to abandon the faith. But if we are truly His and we will remain His in any generation, any age or epoch that we, we find ourselves, those who are in Christ will remain in Christ. do, I have a reader for one of those two yellow passages on there. James 1, 2 through 2-4 or 2 Timothy 1, 12. Does anybody have those? All right. Whoever gets there first, go ahead and read it for us, and then I'll wrap up with First Peter. I okay. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I am convinced that He is able to guard that until that day, which has been entrusted to me. All right. He is able to guard that until that day, which has been entrusted to me. That's a little bit backwards from how I have it memorized. He is able to guard that which I have entrusted to Him until that day right so god is the one who will will guard and protect our our salvation our hope that is within us our yeah our hope in him that he has placed within us um he will guard that and protect it and we will always be his and then sam you said you had james 1 2 through 4 God of all joy my brothers when you meet various
1: trials of various kinds For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in
0: nothing. Alright, so that steadfastness or that endurance is uh, produced in us and it has its perfect effect so that we are complete, we are perfect, we are full, not lacking in anything. Uh, God will carry us through to the end if He has called us to Himself to begin with and then 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-7. I have it up here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Those are amazing uh, terms right there. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. This hope that He has caused... Uh, us to be born again in. um, Reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials or persecutions or tribulations, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, Even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing passage. I love that passage. It's such an encouragement to realize that um, whatever persecution has happened, either in the first century or in the last century, but even for us today, whatever persecution uh, we go through, no matter how bad it is, it has some kind of meaning, it has some kind of purpose. Uh, and it will result in blessing beyond imagination. It will result in uh, a life that we get to live ultimately with Christ in the flesh. Um, there is a, a great blessing, a glorious hope that we have in him. And I think that's what he's trying to communicate in this last verse is he's saying, "You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, offering this uh, encouragement that yeah there are bad times coming but he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and in this world you will face trials and persecutions but take heart because he has overcome the world um, yeah thoughts or questions for wrap up I mean I have this kind of goes backwards Uh, yeah, preterist is like a, a large umbrella term. And so there might be groups that hold to preterism. Um, a lot of the Hebrew nationalists, the black Hebrew Israelite people, they'll hold to some of that. Um, I'm not sure of like particular groups, but anybody who does hold to that and says that Christ has already come back, that we don't have a second coming to look forward to. Again, I think we can put them outside of the camp of Christianity. The same kind of idea as the kingdom is here now, you know, sort of stuff that people talk about. Uh, that's yeah. more partial preterism. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. Preterism falls into Pharisee. Partial preterism is more straddle in that language. You say? Yeah, and, and I don't. I don't think that a lot of the partial preterists are consistent. I think that if they were consistent, then they would embrace full preterism because they'll actually take and they'll kind of dissect the book of Revelation. And um, where we don't see the church at all, chapters 6 through 18, they'll say, uh, well, all that is just allegorical and it has already happened. But chapter uh, 19 and 20 talking about the the second coming of Christ and the future judgment, they'll... um, kind of hold on to that. No, 19 they'll say that that is um that's still future. That's literal. And then 20 with the judgment they'll say no that's that's allegorical. That's already taken place back in 70 AD. And then 21, 22 the future uh new heavens and new earth they'll say oh yeah, well, that's still future and that's still literal. We have that to look forward to. And so you're kind of going back and forth between What is literal? What is allegorical? What is past? What is future? And I don't think it's really consistent. I think the preterists are a little bit more consistent than the partial preterists. But the partial preterists are uh, usually Christians, whereas the preterists aren't. So like all millennialism would kind of fall under that that partial preterism thing. It's just kind of more based on the, would you say, inconsistent understanding? Yeah, it's based on reading the Bible through the lens of your... Uh, a, a system. Taking a, a system of hermeneutic and reading that into Scripture rather than reading what the Bible says and then developing our system of theology. Alright, let's pray and we'll wrap up. God, You are good. We don't deserve Your goodness. We thank You for the peace that You give us through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that You would help us to draw closer to You today. Amen.